I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Uh, infrastructure is just the most classic long now subject. Uh, it's the slowest thing we do in the built environment, the biggest. So we've got two talks, one tonight and one coming up next month from James Fallows. Uh, that one he's matching it, infrastructure and civilization, some of which we saw just now. There's also a thing you might call natural infrastructure. So when you think of a bridge over the river, that's infrastructure. But the river under the bridge is also infrastructure. It's how things get from the ocean to the city. It's how the water gets here and there. A lot of travel happens there. It's a big event. And uh, the bridge better be aware of when the river might flood, uh, especially if there's ice flows. Well, the steady climate for the last 10,000 years <clears throat> has been basically the Holocene, the Long Now's infrastructure. Uh, varied a little bit, but nothing like what has been over much of time. This has been a really quiet 10,000 years climatically, uh, which may be coming to an end. And so if that part of natural infrastructure is on the move, what should human infrastructure be thinking about in relation to that? Nobody knows that subject better than Saul Griffith. Uh, thank you all. Um, as Sandra said, I, I'm speaking on a couple of weeks' notice, uh, so I hand-drew my slides to save time. Um, I last talked at the Long Now, I think, in 2007? 2009, thank you. <laughs> I've had two children since then, explains the loss of memory. My, my distinct, uh, I distinctly remember that talk because I was introduced then, as I was again tonight, by a man carrying a knife. Um, and I just want Stuart to know that I came prepared this time. Um, <laughs> it was just an odd thing to remember. Anyway, I'm going to talk about climate. I'm actually not going to say a lot about climate tonight because uh, there's enough said about that. I'm going to talk a lot about energy and then... Um, I really, you know, in some respects, tonight is my rethinking and reprise of the talk I gave a long time ago, which variations of that talk were, have been called the most depressing talk ever. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to do my best uh, for this to actually not be the most depressing talk ever. And I think that's really uh, embodied in my thoughts around infrastructure. And I'm going to make us all think about infrastructure in a larger way than we might typically do, just in the way that... Stuart reminded us that the water under the bridge is in the river under the bridge is infrastructure in the same way that the, the bridge itself is. All right, so brief uh, US history, as seen by someone with a training in engineering. Uh, this, is, this is how much energy the US has used since uh, 1800. Um, what you'll notice there, there's a couple of interesting things. Uh, up until 1850, that was sort of the the, the real start of the Industrial Revolution, it was just renewables and biomass that powered the US. Uh, you'll see the rapid rise of coal into 1900. Um, 
and then the rapid rise of oil once we got automobiles and airplanes, and then after World War II, the, the rapid rise of nuclear. And you can see renewables sort of trending up pretty quickly again, which is good news. So the real purpose of this slide is to, I, I want us to think a little bit longer. We're, after all, at the long now. Um, so think about this 200 years represented here. Some pretty amazing things happened that no one in 1800 would have suspected, such as the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we electrified 70% of homes between 1880 and 1930. Think about that as an enormous social transformation. 75% of the population moved off farms in the century, in the last century. So we went from, uh, you know, we're down to about 2% of people now living on farms. It's an unbelievable shift uh, in, in culture and, and infrastructure to support that. Uh, we gave women the vote. Uh, we have the civil rights movement and we just allowed gay marriage. Again, I, and I put those sort of cultural pieces on this map as like people sitting and standing in 1900 really wouldn't have suspected that uh, those things were going to happen. So what's going to happen in the next 40 or 50 years, which is really the crunch period for dealing with climate change, and I guess to remind you of these sort of momentous events that, that, that transpired, we actually have enough time for momentous social change. Um, so this is, a, this is a photograph in Oakland under the bridge. Uh, obviously this is automotive infrastructure and then you'll see the trains in the foreground. And we're going to talk a lot about uh, the infrastructure needed to solve the problem. Uh, just to quickly cover climate, this is a paper from 1896 by Arrhenius. This was the first time someone said, and you can see it there in yellow, the atmosphere acts like a glass of, uh, of a hothouse. So this described the greenhouse effect. Up here, carbonic acid, now known as CO2, uh, is the problem. So he predicted the problem. We've since measured it very well, in both in ice core data and then in the, the Mount Aloha data set. You can see the seasonal variations. This is one of the famous graphs from uh, Al Gore. Uh, that's the last time I talked at the long now. We were at 390. Uh, despite people protesting that we should stop at 350, we now are over 400. And we really haven't changed the trajectory of this in the last uh, eight years. Uh, this CO2 correlates to temperature. That's this graph. It's wide. You know, it, this is the one that everyone likes to dispute, uh, except for the scientists. Uh, <laughs> I actually think one really intellectually beautiful thing happened that I think helps us understand climate change since I last gave this talk. I can't remember what year this paper came out, 2010 or 2011. This is called the Trillion Ton Paper. And basically, they, they you know, on the left axis there, you'll see, that, you know, what is the probability of exceeding two degrees of warning? And they have a whole bunch of scenarios on this, and you could roughly describe them as just plain bad, that's the average one in the middle, wow, we got lucky, uh, and then far worse than we thought scenario. And then, basically, here's the trillion tons. So if we burn a trillion tons of carbon, we, we've got something like uh, 10 to 40% chance of going over two degrees of warming, or expressed in another way, in a far more technically accurate way than worse than we thought, or well, we got lucky. Um, scientists have actually now negotiated what very likely, likely, maybe unlikely, and very unlikely is. Um, Seriously, this is what the IPCC do sometimes. Um, it's not all they do, I hope. Anyway, we're likely 
not guaranteed of staying below two degrees if we stay under the trillion tons. So unfortunately, this is all the reserves of gas, oil, coal, uh, and then some of the CO2 that we will get from land use changes. You'll see that uh, if the mouse is rolling over it. Um, basically, we have to stop here, and we definitely can't burn all of the reserves. So what do you do uh, to do that? I guess uh, in, in peak Al Gore, uh, the answer was put solar cells on your roof, change LEDs, and buy an electric car. Um, and I, in just a much more anally retentive way, fell trapped to the same problem. So this is actually a slide from my 2009 talk. This is every single activity in my life uh, measured in watts, so that's the sort of constant rate of power for that activity to go on, and so I could compare all of my life. Um, and it looked wonderful, and it gave me the appearance of authority because I had done so much math, and it bamboozled audiences. Uh, in fact, I gave this talk often enough that I was able to test this talk in every possible set of units. So I've given this talk in watts, I've given it in kilowatt hours per day, I've given it in BTUs, in quads, uh, even in horsepower. And I actually think, um, for the average audience, that the, 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 when, I, when I gave the talk in horsepower, I think 25% of people thought they got all of it, which was far higher than when I talked in watts. So anyway, that is to say, uh, all I really learned from all of that detail was that, you know, roughly bottled water is stupid, use cold water detergent, read your newspaper online instead of on your device, big fight in my family over cancelling six out of seven days of the subscription to the newspaper on that one, LED lighting is good, be more vegetarian, got to make cars better on the technology side, got to improve the HVAC, uh, heating, cooling in buildings, and in order to stop flying, you got to make video <laughs> conferencing not suck. Um, which tragically, given that we're living in the information age, is the thing that we've made the least progress on, uh, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Anyway, so that was one version, a summary of that over-detail that I used to get, and I think it actually led to this uh, very typical environmentalist refrain, refrain of fly less, drive less, this is good though, pay less tax, so because the government spends your tax dollars doing stuff, that those dollars use energy, so you could actually say that you don't pay tax, you don't use that energy. So that was the good libertarian side of this, but otherwise it was pay less tax, buy less stuff, shower less in a smaller, colder house. <laughs> uh, my wife and I actually uh, enacted that plan. <laughs> um, we have a 670 square foot Victorian. Uh, work in a cold office and eat less meat, so there you go. Um, and I kind of think this is the route that environmentalists got stuck in, uh, and I don't think it actually allows us to move forward, and I think the real problem is it makes you have to make the right environmental decision at every, every minute of every day. Uh, this is not really how you solve a problem. So the Romans were the first to have population densities high enough that people's uh, drinking needs and uh, crapping or pooping needs, for want of a better term, um, needed to be dealt with, so they built the first infrastructure. So this is one of the aqueducts. I can't remember the name, sadly. But in doing so, rather than make you have to think every time, all day, you know, if you 
you know, pre-aqueduct Rome, you, ha you had to be consciously aware of how much water was left and where you're going to get water from, et cetera, et cetera. And then we made it easy and unconsciously you would solve your water problems every day because we built infrastructure. And I'd like to now sort of suggest that we, we have to build infrastructure. Sorry, well, don't laugh yet. Um, <laughs> we need to build infrastructure uh, to solve the problem so that we don't have to think about it every day. Because I think we're not going to, you know, yes, there's a few environmentalists in this audience who are very happy to have every waking hour lowering their carbon footprint, but I don't think that scales for civilization. Um, I was in a race last time I spoke to finish a book about everything that I'm talking about tonight. I completely lost that race to my good friend, David Mackay. He wrote a wonderful book called Sustainability Without the Hot Air. Um, you should read that. He and I traded backwards and forwards uh, on climate and energy issues for years, and he's told me one of the wisest things I ever heard, which is all human activity is folly. Because if you get hung up in the details about energy and climate, you want to trade off not doing this versus doing that. And he sort of said, no, look, there's, there's, no, there's no human activity that's better or worse than anyone else's. Uh, <laughs> I wonder how many people here know my true feelings on this matter. So, uh, I don't know, two or three years ago, uh, the Burning Man organization came to me and said, we'd love to talk to you and engage with you to be a spokesperson on the environment and climate for Burning Man. Uh, and I don't know, it was a, it was a particularly bad day. Um, <laughs> and by pure coincidence, the Friday night before, I had gone to Oakland Coliseum with my four-year-old son to see the monster trucks. And uh, basically, I, was, I, I just didn't really know what to say. I was like, you have no fucking idea, or something was what I said. There's, uh, you know, your Burning Man is the least green thing in the world, <laughs> right? So you take all of these people, you make them drive a long distance out into the desert, they air-condition open tents with diesel, uh, <laughs> and that gets worse every year. Um, and I'm going to build you an argument that if rather you have humble people drive efficient cars all to a centralized location to watch only two or, you know, 20,000 people go and watch two or 3,000 horsepower cars drive in circles. That's super efficient. <laughs> um, so I kind of said I, I won't be the, the, the climate spokesperson for Burning Man until I'm invited to be the climate spokesperson for the Monster Truck Foundation, which would have been much more fun. Um, anyway, so I did neither gig. Uh, I still believe it's true, and I kind of, I, I think, you know, uh, all jokes aside, I think the serious point is, um, and the other, you know, the big problem with the environmental movement is we've been very preachy, and I think if you just always remember, look, all human activity is folly. Is it really horrible to once a year go and thoroughly enjoy this? I mean, I was, it really, it's kind of like Disney on four wheels. It was <laughs> tremendous. Um, Another sage friend of mine, Tim Anderson, uh, I asked him when I was giving the world's most depressing talk, how do I make it not so depressing? How do I describe a future that's awesome? And Tim very wisely said, well, it's obvious. Uh, and he, he was like, he didn't even take much time to think about it. He's like, you, you know, in the future, we will bow hunt monk-raised bison from electric SUVs on Thursdays. Um, which honestly sounds like a pretty cool future. Uh, but I think, uh, Tim's point was, you know, 
it's not like there's going to be no testosterone or there's not going to be there's going to be like no joy in the future. So if you want to get people to sign up, um, it, we <laughs> it should be super fun. And, and I think in here it's like, well, here's all the super fun testosterone-filled activity with the bow hunting electric. Uh, monster truck, but actually, in a more deep sense, it's like we only do it on Thursdays, so there is some <laughs> sense of limits. Um, and their monk raised organic bison, so we do it, things in the right way, respectful of, of the world. And, you know, I think we need that more positive type of vision. So I'm now going to go ahead for the rest of the talk, and every time you think I'm making a judgment about something, just remind yourself that all human activity is folly, and I may just be... Uh, reflecting that. All right, so to go back to solving this problem and, and, and fixing that, uh, what do you do? And then, again, reminding ourselves, this is Hoover Dam, that we're going to think about changing the infrastructure in the right way. Let's go back to that pie chart. So thinking, and this is where I want you to start to expand your definition of infrastructure. So when I say improve government spending, you know, this is our cultural and social and political infrastructure. Um, you know, we have to improve the way we spend taxes uh, so that they, they, they don't consume as much energy or produce as much CO2. Improve the quality of our collective stuff, the things we own. This is, again, this is sort of a cultural infrastructure because it's our desires, collective desires that work. Improving our food and our diet, so we need to think about agriculture as an infrastructure. Uh, improve our civil infrastructure, so in a very... Uh, deep sense urban planning, and any architect or urban planner in the audience knows this. This is one of the, the, the most important pieces of the puzzle. Start to think of the not urban transport like BART as infrastructure, but also think of our collective fleet of cars as our sort of your personal infrastructure. It's in, in the sense that infrastructure is something that you purchase once and lasts for a long time in your life. You know, cars are a piece of your personal infrastructure or your transport. Similar, same with your house. Your house is part of your personal infrastructure, and the, the, the collective uh, national set of houses is, is our, uh, our infrastructure. Uh, improve the built environment, so that's all the things, you know, the social and cultural infrastructure of all the rest of our buildings. You've got to improve the internet, because shockingly the internet is rising up to use a lot of energy, but it may be in a good way, and then I still don't have an answer for flying and video conferencing. Um, that's the remainder term. So if we do all of those things, we should be able to shrink this, get more efficient. In a, com in a, com in a combination of new technologies and, and thinking about an infrastructure, I think we can actually get to a good solution. Which brings me to shit. Um, this is a sewerage plant. Um, kind of infrastructure is all the unpleasant things you don't want to think about every day, the, the, the difficult things like bringing buckets of water up the hill and, and, and cleaning up after yourself. So, how, you know, again, um, how do we build infrastructure so that we don't, in the same way we don't really wish to, you know, deal with our own sewerage every day, let's build the infrastructure so we don't have to deal with our own CO2 effluent. So this is my house. Uh, this is the 670 square foot house in San Francisco that's cold. Um, there it is on Bernal. It's actually a lovely little house. Uh, there's our street. There's our house. It's a gigantic 25-foot by 80-foot San Francisco lot. Um, that's 2,000 square foot, 200 square meters. All right. Quick primer on solar energy. 1,000 watts per square meter of sun comes down through the atmosphere at noon at the equator. 
But there's, some of it's absorbed in the atmosphere, some of it is reflected off clouds. Obviously, there's day-night cycles. And the insulation, so the net amount that hits the ground, spans roughly 100 to 330 watts per square metre. 100 in, in sort of far north and far southern cold places and 330 in places like Arizona. In San Francisco, it runs roughly uh, 150 to 290 throughout the year. Anyway, you then collect those with solar cells that are about 10 to 40% efficient. You can't cover the ground 100% with solar cells, so maybe 50 to 75%. I think it's pretty reasonable with really good solar cells these days to get 25 to 35 watts per square meter. So the average American, which I'm now going to assume that I am, 11,000 watts of my power, I need, I would have to cover 100% of my lot and 80% of Melissa's house uh, in solar cells just to power me. So you can see, you know, in this old uh, Al Gore world where we we're going to solve it by putting PV on our rooftops and buying an electric car, you can already see that it's starting to break down. Most of us don't have enough, um, enough infrastructure of our own, so we need to rely on it. It's actually worse than that, so this is my family of four uh, out for Pride this year. Um, there they are. My, I just showed that photo of my wife because it's hilarious. Uh, don't know what she was thinking. Is she more stoned there or the dog here? Uh, so we also have a dog. Anyway, with my family of four plus dog, um, at the average insulation value for Sydney, uh, for San Francisco, uh, excuse me, step back in time. Hi, Mum. Not only do I need to cover 100% of our land, right, so not just the roof, so 100% of my little lot, I need to cover Melissa's, and the Lopez's, and I can't remember, two more neighbours up the hill. It's amazing you can only go two neighbours up and you forgot the names. Um, that's society and culture right there. So uh, that's in the summer, so obviously infra infrastructure problem, but in the winter, you can see this is the daily solar insulation in kilowatt hours per day per square metre. You can ignore all the units in this talk. I really am trying to get to a place where people can understand this talk just on the pictures. Come, uh, tell, tell me later how I did on that. Um, anyway, in winter, there's a lot less solar. So actually, for my family of four, during winter, if we were going to 100% power our lives from the best solar cells you can get today, installed better than we can today, I need basically the entire block and a little bit of the block next to us. Uh, so that should tell you something about the sort of I'll buy a Tesla and solar cells approach as not enough. We have to think about this again as infrastructure because the problem and the size of the problem is much bigger than ourselves. So is it any better for the city of San Francisco? Uh, hilariously, I was invited uh, to join the mayor's uh, San Francisco 100% renewable by 20... I can't even remember what date they were going to, we were going to be 100% renewable by. And I went to the first meeting, all excited to be invited to be on this thing, and it was prestigious. Turns out there were only two people in the room with technical backgrounds, and there were roughly 18 uh, developers um, <laughs> lobbying for their interests at the mayor's bequest to do 100% renewable energy. I said, is nuclear renewable? They said, no, of course nuclear is not renewable. I said, well, are we going to disconnect from the Californian grid? And they said, no. And I said, well, okay, then you have to somehow redefine it. Then it, it got worse from there. <laughs> uh, okay, seven by seven miles, the city of San Francisco. Uh, 
we use 5.2 gigawatts of power. Uh, on average, throughout the year, we need 120%. So this is a solar cell roof, like shade structure, <laughs> right? Not only overall of San Francisco, but on top of Carl, so we don't take the hit for, for Carl taking the... Uh, Carl's the fog. I learned that from my son. Anyway, in winter, it's even worse. Uh, we, need, we need half a marine, Treasure Island, and a whole lot of the bay. Uh, again, there's an even bigger carport um, to solve the problem. So, uh, you, you know, quite literally, San Francisco can't produce its own power. So again, we've got to think in a much bigger infrastructure sense to solve the problem. Uh, which actually we've done before, which is the good news. So here we are, 49 square miles, 120 million square meters. We get 24 inches per year uh, of rain, except for the last 10 years. <laughs> uh, actually, San Francisco, yeah, well, yeah, we, we're doing bad. Um, 0.6 meters per year. Uh, so we need 73 million cubic meters. We get 73 million cubic meters of water hitting San Francisco. That's hitting every square inch. So if we could trap it all, we'd get that much. Unfortunately, that's how much we use. So um, the point being here is that when we design the city, or if I don't know whether they, how, how much forethought they were using, we did this, and we got Hetch Hetchy, right? So we needed this huge water infrastructure because San Francisco could never be st uh, stand on its own two feet, and so we get our water from here, and we planned that infrastructure. And so really, on the energy generation side, thinking about effluent again, this is another sewage plant. Um, I have a lot of photographs of these things now. Uh, how do we... How do we plan our infrastructure in the energy sense so that we, we have something equivalent to Hetch Hetchy for us? So that forces you to think about you know, how big is our solar cell, or are we going to use some biofuels as a biofuel refinery, or a geothermal plant, how much about geothermal, or are we allowed to use some nuclear? So, all right, another super quick primer. Um, how much power or energy, you know, power is just energy per unit of time, so how much power does uh, humanity use? Um, us all use somewhere between 10 and 20 terawatts of power, and that's the only... You don't need to know it any more accurately than that. If you captured all of the energy in all the world's oceans going up and down, you'd get about 3.5 terawatts, so a small fraction of humanity's power. And it's a pretty disruptive process. You can see this is a tidal power station where they dam off the entire estuary and you, you let the water flow in and out through turbines. So it's pretty disruptive, and even if you did all of it, uh, you don't really provide a huge amount of power. So this is a super niche technology. And there's coastal waves, and then the surfer in me got to... This, this was when I got the most distracted in preparing this talk, was looking at wave photos. Choosing the best wave photo was very... <laughs> difficult for me. Uh, so I just went with a sort of, you know, a nice, you know, eight-foot shoulder classic. Um, and then I had to have this photo because it's amazing. Uh, anyway, sorry, back to coastal waves. <laughs> I, I, it really got me distracted. Okay, coastal waves. If you put a magic machine around every coastline of every, every piece of land on Earth, you only get three terawatts of power, and then you don't have any more of these. So we're not going to do that. Uh, this is awesome. It's not. It's kind of this. It's obviously not a deep ocean wave because it's hitting a um, a Welsh 
lighthouse quite close to shore, but it was obviously a deep ocean wave that made it most of the way to shore. It's just mind-boggling. Um, so there's a lot of power out there, 60 terawatts, but it's super hard to get. Uh, wind, there's a huge amount of it, 400 to 3,600 terawatts of it, depending upon how high up you go. That's what I spent some number, half of the years since I last talked to you doing, was, was pioneering uh, with a bunch of incredible people, McCartney Power, doing airborne wind technology. Uh, they're going to be launching their first, uh, I think, roughly half megawatt systems uh, early next year or late this year, which is super exciting. Anyway, wind is great. Ours don't look like that, but these are still cool. I think they're beautiful, not everyone does. Uh, hydroelectric, if you dammed every river in the world, you only get about half of humanity's power. And we already use quite a lot of hydroelectric. So that's what this looks like, and it is pretty disruptive to the environment. Uh, if you burnt every single piece of uh, green stuff that grew on land on every continent every year, you only get you know, three to four times humanity's power supply. So biofuels are interesting, but let's temper our enthusiasm a bit. Um, looks like that. Although it looks quite beautiful, although it's probably wine, not biofuels. I should have checked that. <laughs> uh, more than two weeks next time, Stuart. Um, so ocean bio, people want to use algae. This is totally a, a lying photograph. That's actually a seaweed farm to make yuppie seaweed crisps or something. Um, <laughs> but some people argue there's another 20, 20 or 30 terawatts of biological energy in the oceans to get, so maybe. Uh, geothermal, 25 to 30 terawatts, so it's comparable to humanities. Uh, in Iceland, it's great, where it's close to the surface and easy to get to. There's the ocean thermal gradient, but I put it in pink to not take it too seriously because it's super hard to get and we'll ignore it for a second. Anyway, solar is gigantic, it's huge. So solar, uh, you know, and that's why we're seeing a lot of this, um, is really good. If you kind of apportioned transparency to these things in proportion to the likelihood that they solve the problem, we're going to be mostly doing solar and wind with some hydroelectric, some bio and some geothermal. Um, and all right, quick tutorial on power density. So like we explained before, you get about 35 watts per square meter for solar if you do it really well. I think the most bullish technologists out there would double this in the next 50 years. So we're, we're, we're within a factor of two of as good as you're ever going to do as defined by Einstein in 1908. So go pick a fight with him, uh, if you don't believe me. Um, wind. Uh, Unfortunately, you have to space all those turbines a long way apart, so you only get about two to three watts per square meter. You can still use the land in between them, but probably only to grow biofuels. Nice segue, uh, one to two watts per square meter. So for an equivalent amount of energy, you can see how much more land you need as these squares grow. Just for fun, let's put nuclear in there, uh, which is why you probably have to keep it on the table, because it is super nice and dense. So there you go, that's what a nuclear power plant is. Everyone thinks that these big cooling towers are the nuclear power plant. Actually, the reactors are over here in these concrete uh, cells, the generators are in this big brown box, and this is just for cooling the water. So actually, the limit on nuclear is actually how much cold water there is in the world. Um, so a lot of rivers, we already, uh, we take cold water in from the rivers to cool our what's called thermoelectric power plants, um, such as a nuclear one. Coal is also thermoelectric, so you heat water up make steam, run it through a steam turbine, and then you flush hot water back into the rivers. And you can't 
flush too much hot water back in the rivers or you cook the fish. So we're kind of getting to the limits in a lot of river systems and, and in a lot of places of power generation of the temperature of water that we can flow back. So one, if you, if you have a good idea for how to make uh, waterless cooling towers, talk to the Department of Energy. Um, all right, so here's our trade-off, uh, roughly. If we think that the four big ones are going to be solar, nuclear, biofuels, and wind, um, which I do, I don't think there's anything, you know, in 2007 or 2009, last time I gave this talk, there was a, every, there was a lot of excitement about energy then, and everyone thought that there were all sorts of new energy systems on the horizon. None have come true in the past eight years. They're probably not going to come true. This looks like the smorgasbord that we have. Uh, and then I've sort of tried to put the trade-offs here. So more grid distribution when you have the big centralized things like nuclear and solar, although that's a little bit going to be true of wind too. Solar and wind are the ones, they don't have storage inherently built in. So if you've got more and more of those, we need batteries or some way to store that energy for when we need it, either for uh, peak daytime or winter, as we learned earlier. Uh, more land required, so you've got to give up more land if you want more wind and more biofuels. And then more other types of pollution, whether that be radioactive uh, in small quantities or um, you know, soot and particulate matter from the burning of biofuels. All right, here's a particularly nice piece of infrastructure that the America did really well. Uh, this is your national forest and national park infrastructure. And it's important that we grow that infrastructure in some sense. This is one of our best carbon sinks in this country. Um, so that's just a plug for that type of infrastructure. All right, this is where the solar could go, across the south and southwest. That's where the wind wants to go. So there's a lot of wind on the coasts, a lot of wind in the middle, not so much in the other bits. That's probably where you want to grow all your plants. And because it's, we're in San Francisco, let's put all the nuclear over here. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, this... Okay, um, it's very fashionable uh, to make jokes about Washington. No, it's very fashionable um, to say we only need 100 by 100 miles of solar in the desert, and everyone says this, and you hear it over and over and over again. Uh, I don't think that's a very useful... because it's, it's not how we're going to build it. Um, I, we're very, very unlikely, and I don't think it's very useful for us to visualise the size of the infrastructure that we're talking about. So, here's a gated community somewhere. There's a lot of roofs there. Uh, I think we have 117 million housing units in America. If you put those perfect solar cells covering 75% of the roof of all of the housing units in America, all of our houses, you get about 0.8 terawatts. It's about a quarter of what America uses today. Uh, this is a beautiful piece of infrastructure. This is the United States highway system snapshot in 1920. It's kind of shocking to me that it was already so well developed, right? 20 years after cars came along. Look how quickly we rolled out that infrastructure. Um, and, and I remember that. Anyway, we ha now have 8.167 million, million lane miles of roads, and they're average 11 foot wide things you learn on Saturday mornings. Uh, if you covered all of them uh, with those same solar cells, you'd get about 1.6 terawatts. So I think the, mo the easiest way for me to tell you how to visualise what is the infrastructure change that we need 
It's like, we basically need another set of roads next to every other road you're driving on that's solar cells, uh, and we're going to put PV on every single roof, right? And that'll mostly cover uh, America's power, power problem. Um, I happen to think, if you think about it, right, uh, in some respects, think of this map. Right? Oh, no, I'm, I'm not going to go back. Anyway, think of the map that didn't have roads on it that existed 30 years before this one where we had the national highway system. So we're going to do that, I hope. I think we can. All right, anyway, while we're talking about roads, uh, think about the 250 million cars we own as a collective piece of infrastructure that has a huge role to play in this energy system that we talk about. Uh, this is from the National Household Transport Transit Survey. This is uh, uh, a histogram of the number of miles of each trip you take, you drive, by the frequency with which we drive all of those trips. Um, this is a huge field of brand new F-150s, the most popular car ever, although I think they totally cheated. We made 55 million VW Beetles that were very much like the original and they were way cuter. And the F-150 is called the F-150, but they changed it tons. So it's cheating. Um, I am a car nerd, which turns out sucks if you're an environmentalist and a car nerd. We'll, we'll come back to that. But all human activity is folly, right? 25% um, of vehicle miles are trips less than eight miles. Think about that. One quarter are less than eight miles. Uh, that is quite unbelievable uh, to me. These are maybe better smaller cars. Uh, another 25% of the trips, so fully 50% of our trips are 18 miles or less. Um, anyway, so a bit of a history lesson for the car nut in the audience who didn't grow up in America. So I don't really know my Mustangs and my Chevys, but boy do I know European crap. Um, uh, the French president, jealous that Hitler had, uh, had Porsche designing him the VW Beetle, asked Citroën to go ahead and design a car for the people. Uh, and I, it, was in, it was extraordinarily French. It was like the, the design spec was it should carry four passengers, you know, a couple of loaves of bread. It should have, uh, you should be able to have, uh, drive your eggs to market over an unplowed field without breaking the eggs. Literally, this was the French... Yeah, I'm, I'm not joking. And the, the designer's name was Boulanger, and he accepted the task. And he delivered this vehicle, which, it, which had a 300cc engine so that put out 9.5 rip-roaring horsepower. Uh, it got 65 miles per gallon. We did that in 1948. And it weighed 1,300 pounds. Some of the light-weighting measures they did, there was no metal roof. It was a piece of canvas. You sat in hammocks, because that's the lightest way to make a seat. This was... A death trap at all speeds. <laughs> uh, but I actually love it. It's called the Ugly Duck. It's the De Chaveau. Um, okay, everyone in Europe post-World War II made some amazing, efficient little car. This is the Fiat Cinquenta, the Fiat 500, or the Bambino. Uh, it came out in 1957 with a huge 479cc engine, 43 miles per gallon, and weighed 1,100 pounds. I actually was at the Fiat dealership on Saturday, more, you know, more to go on that story. Uh, you can buy a 2015 version of that same car that pretends to be called the Fiat 500 with a 1400cc engine getting 34 miles per gallon, more than double the weight. Same story with the Beetle, 1950 was the original, 1100cc, 36 miles per gallon, 1300 pounds. 
This year model, 1800cc, 29 miles per gallon, so worse again, weighs 3,200 pounds, has a huge number of cup holders, a little thing for a flower in the middle to remind you how green it is compared to the original. Uh, my personal favorite, the Mini Cooper S, I learned to drive, I was eight years old, I could reach the pedals. Uh, my father totaled it, my mother never let him get another one. It was a death trap. Uh, 959, 848cc, Leyland Mini, 36 miles per gallon, 1,350 pounds, and the new one, again, lower fuel economy, bigger engine, double the weight, um, quadruple the smugness. Uh, <laughs> even our SUVs got worse, 1948 Land Rover, weighed 2,500 pounds, got 24 miles per gallon. The 2015, cheating using diesel, which has higher energy content, gets 20 miles per gallon, more than double the weight. All right, so you can see the trend. We did, all of this weight doubling was really done mostly so we could go a bit faster uh, and, or, or wait in traffic longer, um, and also for safety reasons. Um, okay, here's the first one that really changes the equation. So this is actually a car that my wife and I leased on Saturday or Sunday, I can't remember because the kids were screaming so much. Uh, kids hate car dealerships, pro tip. Uh, anyway. Uh, 112 miles per gallon, uh, electric car. Um, I believe that they are giving them away on these screaming lease deals to try and meet the cafe standards so they can sell the Maseratis for profit because it's the same company. Um, okay, but the 112 miles per gallon is only equivalent. Let's talk about 112 miles per gallon equivalent. Right? If you're running it off the California electricity grid, here's the composition of the California electricity grid in 2014. 40% natural gas, 29% other imports, that's dirty shit from other states, um, that we don't want to call it that because we're Californians. 5% uh, big hydro, 1% small hydro, some geothermal, tiny bit of coal, 6% nuclear, solar and wind are actually doing really well, growing really fast. Um, but basically, if you're running this at, off that dirty grid, you're actually getting you know, this type of fuel economy uh, in reality, because you're just burning fossil fuels elsewhere and, It'll net out about the same. So that is to say, when someone says, I bought one of these, aren't I great? You're like, well, uh, only if you're doing that, right? Uh, and w we may discuss that. And I'm now going to switch units, because it's useful for the next piece. Um, electric cars, it makes more sense to talk about the watt hours of energy used to drive a mile. All right. Before we get there, uh, 2009, we were pregnant. My wife was pregnant. Uh, it's nice to pretend that I was helpful. Uh, I was helpful. I was so concerned. I was like, oh, we have to have a safe car, because we had the two-seat Honda Insight, the, the, the really efficient one that got 100 miles per gallon, um, all aluminum. Uh, and was, you, you couldn't fit a baby seat in there. So I went to the Volkswagen dealership, and I wrestled between, well, I, before I went to the dealership, I wrestled between these two cars, because in 2009, you could get a Prius, or you could get the Volkswagen Jetta sports wagon, and they both got 40 to 50 miles per gallon, and when you drive the Prius, you felt like it was an insult to all Italian men. <laughs> um, it is the least passionate car in the, in the history of the universe. Uh, so, <laughs> all right, but I'm now regretting that, because as we all know, this week, these bastards lied uh, which is terrible because we didn't take the $7,000 trade-in and now we've got a car that no one wants to buy. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, all right. This is actually the huge thing that happened. Sometime in 2010, 2011, the Prius actually became a plug-in, which is awesome because if you remember this, 50% of our miles are less than 50% of our trips are less than 20 miles. If you have a plug-in car, um, you'll almost never use the gasoline if all of those trips are that. So you're really only going to use the gasoline when you need it, which is for the long trips. And I would now argue that the Chevy Volt. And the Prius, if you can't buy an all-electric car because you really, really are anxious, um, there's a lot of anxious people in this city. It's more and more than there used to be, too, sadly. Um, but you should get one of these and forget these rotten bastards. Um, they lied to me. All right. Uh, I actually think it's an amazing time. Uh, I don't know. One of the questions I often get asked about this is, you know, is this a technology problem or it's a cultural problem? Honestly, I think climate change is a cultural problem and a social problem. Uh, but technology enables you to have... New technology lets you have the conversation in a new way every time. So I think there is an, we have an incredible opportunity if we want to think broadly about infrastructure, we want to think broadly about transport, because of the rise of these cute little autonomous cars. Um, so I asked my friends at Google X to tell me how many watt-hours per mile they refused, because that's so top secret. So AS estimated from this, which is an electric golf cart, <laughs> and because they're Google engineers, they wouldn't do quite as well. Uh, <laughs> they, yeah, I don't know. They shouldn't, they shouldn't keep secrets from us like that. Um, but to their benefit, they might be doing the right thing, right? 150 watt-hours per mile is going to be two or three times as good, it's going to be twice as good as our electric fare, two or three times as good as a Tesla. Uh, if you put two people in it, it's going to be great. Um, and because they're autonomous, we might be able to solve a lot of the traffic problems and you'll actually get to the end goal faster. But the, the, we should be having a conversation right now around autonomous cars about the, a much broader one. The one we're having is basically Uber fighting with Google over whether it's going to be a big one or a little one and when you're allowed to use it, as opposed to, hey, if we think about like public transit infrastructure and autonomous cars, maybe we can have a totally better win for society. Uh, incidentally, I wanted this and my wife said, no way. Um, also, I think it's amazing, and you know, going back to the histogram of how we want to travel, we, because of this, the rise of the cheap battery and the rise of cheap electric, high-power-density electric motors, we now have amazing skateboards. Uh, uh, this is a local product. Love it. Uh, this is also a local product. I don't know if Carl's in the audience. Um, this is the one wheel. This is awesome, about 25 watt-hours a mile. Uh, some people don't like it. Some people love it. not going to say anything myself. Uh, 35 watt-hours per mile. Uh, all human activity is folly. Um, this, <laughs> this is, yeah, uh, I hope you're, you're clapping the guy in this. He's actually sitting in the front row, uh, and I wouldn't have pointed that out, except on my way over here, he pointed out that I already had sweaty armpits. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm like, well, yes, you do look like a goofball in this photo then. Um, but there you are, getting 15, 25 watt-hours per mile with, you know, four people on it, so maybe, you know, five watt-hours per mile. That's pretty cool. Uh, I built this, and I've been writing that. I've done, in the last six years, 8,000 miles on that um, at 20 to 30 watt-hours per mile with the dog, the kids, the groceries. Uh, these sort of light electric vehicles really can change your game. So 
Um, I would, yeah, we should all clap, thank you. And we should be like, we should engage those things in the deeper conversation about transport infrastructure and what we want our world to look like. Um, we're still not building bike lanes fast enough, let alone dedicated whole streets to beautiful, fun things like those. Anyway, come back to this. So these are the watt hours per mile of all those vehicles, and you can put them roughly on that map like that. Uh, this is the cool future we could live in. Not everyone looks cool on these, though, I have to say. Some of them look like they should have learned to ride a skateboard first. Um, <laughs> all human activity. Uh, this is Bart. Uh, I never thought I would say the things that are going to come out of my mouth. I love trains. I love trains the way three- and four-year-old boys love trains. If you've had a three- or four-year-old boy, you know what I mean. Um, you probably have boxes of Thomas in the attic. Uh, I love trains. Sadly, if you look at all the history of our BART and most rapid transit systems outside of New York and London, where they have unbelievable population density, you get about 220 watt-hours per mile per passenger. And the land use is not terribly good. It takes a lot of land to build all the railway tracks. And so intercity is, is even worse, and the faster you go, oh, it doesn't make too much difference because they're, they're so long. But uh, you now compare those back to these... Uh, other modes of transport, you know, obviously the two things on the left where you can easily average uh, 10 to 15 miles per hour, um, the, you know, the Google micro thingamy thing. Um, does it have a name yet? Does anyone know? Someone here must be working on it. <laughs> you wouldn't tell me anyway, I know. Uh, all right, I, I never thought I would say the following thing either. Um, a better piece of public infrastructure than trains might be just making autonomous Teslas where you guarantee that you have two or three people in them all the time, right? So in some weird mashup of Google buys Uber, but Tesla runs it, <laughs> uh, you could imagine a 137 watt hour per mile public transit system. Um, this, maybe this is what Hillary can do if she doesn't win next year, run this. Uh, it couldn't get any weirder, but... Um, <laughs> The point is, it's like, seriously, there is an opportunity to, to change the debate around public transit, and then we'll come back more to that. So, you know, I think this should be the goal, and I don't care how we do it, if it's the alphabets or the pink. I love pink, as my daughter says. Uh, <laughs> all right, so we're going to get the infrastructure that we ask for, uh, and this is just a bit of a gripe about um, the way we do it. All right, so the Tesla. There's no limit on how much power you're allowed. There's no speed limit on that thing, although there are practical speed limits. And you get a $7,500 subsidy on a luxury item. Right? We have bizarre 500-watt power limits on the bicycles, electric bikes on the right. Uh, that is absurd. We should have had a torque limit, and that torque limit should have been designed to climb up any hill in San Francisco. So you can barely buy a legal electric bicycle than go up hills in San Francisco because we legislated that possibility out of existence while allowing the thing on the left to occur. We have a 20 mile per hour speed limit, <laughs> seems arbitrary, and we don't have a subsidy. Yet we know the histogram of road miles traveled, right? We're gonna get, you know, we're gonna get the climate outcome that we build the infrastructure for, and we're gonna subsidize the thing on the left, and we're not gonna give families like that on the right, the right infrastructure. I'm not really wanting to beat up on Tesla, I know it sounds like that, but I think it is fair to say the option on the right 
is a lot more affordable to a lot more people and you could give two families that for the subsidy you give one wealthy family to buy a Tesla. Uh, <laughs> all right, I take back everything I said about the Segway. Uh, I actually want to live in this world and this is, if we're, if we're totally going to reimagine infrastructure and we want to uh, bow hunt monk raised bison <laughs> from Segways on Thursdays, um, but I actually, like, this could actually be our commute. There is no reason you would have higher, you know, higher throughput, more efficient, put, putting all these people, things like this. Let's have a dedicated lane surrounded by beautiful gardens uh, with a, 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 a cornucopia of wheeled electrical things that are super fun. Right? All of these things are fun, even the Segway. Uh, that's, that's me going to get ice cream with my kid. You can see him in the back. Uh, that is the most clothed you will typically see him. It is a hat and underwear, so that's winning. Uh, that's three of his best friends. So this is, this is what four watt-hour per mile transport looks like. So in your minds, mash up of that and that, right, as the future of, of, of public transit. Could be awesome. All right, let's think about housing as infrastructure. Uh, I'm going to speed up a little bit, um, I think. Uh, all right. That's pretty depressing. When you talk about housing infrastructure, it's really all about heating and cooling. Uh, so let's go back. Why can I say that with such confidence? There's our house on Manchester Street. Uh, there's the solar insulation. So you can see we don't get a lot of energy heat in the house in winter, and we get you know, three, three times as much in summer. This is our PG&E bills for the last three years. Uh, we, were on, we actually were on extended out-of-country uh, vacation, which is why the data for 2012 looks low. Um, come back for 2013. What you can see here, the red line is a thermal load in watts per square foot. The blue line is the electrical load. So we use you know, 500 watts, or well, half, half a watt per square foot for the house. We use maybe 500 watts for the whole house of electrical load. That's tiny, and the thermal load completely dominates, and especially in the winters. Uh, not only were we away, I really spent that year, because it was closest to when I'd last given this talk, debating the thermo setting, thermostat setting with my wife. I lost it. Uh, so the next year, I installed insulation, um, because that should help. And it did, a tiny bit. And I looked at this graph, and I was like, whoa, installation, the insulation killed it. And then I went and looked at this data. Um, this is really shocking. OK, 2012 is the coldest year, so lower down on the graph, colder. Um, 2013 was a little bit warmer, 2014 was warmer again, uh, and in fact, I, this is super nerdy, uh, <laughs> I graphed the watts per square foot versus the average daily temperature for the house, and you can see that as it gets colder, the electrical goes up a bit because you're inside doing things with electricity, and you're inside using heat, so that makes total sense, which combined with that totally means that these were just warmer years. <laughs> uh, which is also to say, it is extremely difficult to retrofit a 100-year-old Victorian um, that you know, is, is made out of cardboard. Um, it's very charming. It was built uh, the year after the earthquake to provide housing. Uh, so this is the data for the whole nation. Um, in watts per square foot, what this sort of says is as your house gets bigger, you totally get better. You use less watts per square foot. And your electricity goes down, your natural gas goes down, your total energy goes down. We should all have giant houses. That's completely obvious. 
because, as you'll all know if you did high school anything, um, <laughs> the surface area is with the square and the volume's with the cube. And heat is lost through the surface area, and heat is retra retained in the volume. And so that's why that's true, except it's not, <laughs> because we don't put as many people in the big houses. And you can sort of see here, there's actually, this is probably a graph I shouldn't have hand-drawn, because it's super interesting. At about 1,000 square foot seems to be the optimum. And then it goes back up if you look at the housing infrastructure across the country. All right. Uh, this is a much better drawing than I can do. This is done by uh, Richard Thompson, an architect who's helping my wife and I design a new home. Uh, we're moving from Bernal to Bernal because it's really nice there, um, except for getting anything built there. I noticed another architect friend of mine is up there. Uh, I don't know how they live with the uh, city. Uh, by the time this house gets built, I will spend somewhere between 10 and 20% of my living life fighting with the city to get it built. Right? <laughs> which actually is an unbelievably important point. We have to change infrastructure as fast as possible, which I'm going to get to, and we're making it as hard as possible to do so. This is going to be an unbelievably green house, except for the things that the city won't let us do, which would be green. Anyway, more on that. Uh, I can, because I have my data, I'm, this, I'm, I'm predicting how I'm gonna, my new house is going to work. I changed units again, because units don't matter. Just look at the shapes of the curves. Uh, electric showers, there's my electric bikes, awesome. Space heat, huge. Uh, and this is assuming that I'm going to be about three times efficient because we're insulating a lot and we won the fight with the architect about not having windows at the top of the house where all the heat escapes, all of these glass architects. <laughs> uh, that's our electric fit. 6,000 miles a year of the electric fit and um, barely makes a dent. Uh, <laughs> my wife must have got to the slide set. Uh, she grew up in Northern California. Apparently, this is cultural. All human activity is folly. Uh, I do enjoy having hot tubs with my wife. This may make it into the budget. Question mark. Uh, do it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, all right. And then we've maxed out the solar on the roof. And in fact, we put one solar on one uh, southeast-facing wall. And that's how much power we're going to get from the solar. There's this huge amount of power that we can't get. We get a little bit more than we need in summer. Maybe we'll charge the car to drive all year. Oh, wait, that doesn't work. Um, so huge emphasis. Like, storage is still the biggest unsolved hard problem here. Um, all right, thinking out of the box, this is a cord of wood. That is me, <laughs> having cut my cord of wood. Uh, cord of wood, which is a glorious unit of energy, is four foot by four foot by eight foot of wood. <laughs> Literally, and it, there's, there's exchange units. Uh, into BTUs and other useless things. Uh, anyway, it's 5,000 kilowatt hours. A quarter to a half a cord per acre per year is considered the sustainable rate at which you can just cut up what falls over and you, you basically can extract that from your woodlands. Uh, I need three cords of wood to offset, sorry, go back, that. Um, and luckily, my mother-in-law has th uh, six acres, so we can get it. Um, up in Sebastopol, so one day chopping, drive it home in an electric something, uh, bike. <laughs> one day chopping, two days riding home with the electric bike and trail of wood. It's going to be fun. You thought Burning Man was fun. Um, 
And we could totally go completely off-grid. This is the point. We could completely go off-grid in our house if this were allowed. But it's the city of San Francisco, and you're not allowed to put a new wood-burning stove because of air quality issues. But actually, that's kind of an absurd law, because I would prefer to take a 10% hit on the efficiency of that burner by putting in a scrubber so that I could go off the grid. But it's illegal. And this is to say we're going to get the infrastructure that we're that we allow ourselves. And if we're going to solve this, we're going to have to have more biofuels. One of the best ways to use biofuels could be in this manner. Um, and it's a point of one. We, we need to think better. And you know, we make these decisions at city level, and some of them are <coughs> silly. Uh, I don't know how helpful this is. This is just to say that was our house in San Francisco. We have an ideal climate where this is the easiest. If you're in the northeast, you need more energy all year round because you need more heat in the winter and you actually use air conditioning in their muggy summers. In the south, you use less heat in the winters, but you do end up having a lot more air conditioning uh, in the middle. Anyway, white goods as infrastructure while we're on houses, right? After you decide to build a tiny house, uh, the next most important thing is the goods that you fill it with, the refrigerator, water heater, washer dryer. Uh, that might be a better idea, in fact, and because my wife we grew up in Northern California. This is actually our clothesline. <laughs> uh, not kidding. I love her. Um, uh, dishwasher, uh, and then shockingly, and you see this in all the statistics, our electronics are now starting to do dominate the electrical load. Some of these large screen TVs can be close to a kilowatt of power draw, and people like watching a lot of TV. Uh, also, uh, Air conditioning units, especially the window-mounted ones, are terrible. We should use fans. But again, if you're thinking about your personal infrastructure, you buy a house probably once or twice in your life, uh, and you buy white goods probably once or twice in your life. We have to make exactly the right decisions on that infrastructure and get the most efficient stuff at those points. Otherwise, that infrastructure is locked in. Uh, your garden is part of your infrastructure. Uh, this is my lovely wife's garden. She is a master gardener, and it actually keeps the house cooler to have that garden. And city planners everywhere used to, you know, put tree-lined streets to provide shade to keep cities cool. It, it, is, it offsets the urban heat island effect. You can also grow some food here, which means you open the refrigerator less often because you have your own tomatoes. Um, I really would like to emphasize that we should consider seriously the notion that gardening is part of our infrastructure at, at sort of the personal, regional, national levels. Um, I didn't just say that for my wife. I'm really deadly 100% serious, and I'll back it up with data that I'm going to hand draw. <laughs> uh, location is infrastructure. So this is super interesting. God, uh, this is urban planning, right? Look at that. Um, all right. Just using the San Francisco example, but this really applies to everywhere just in slightly different ways. We went out of our ways to buy this tiny house because we, we were going to be cold and use less energy. And then we made sure that my office was like a mile from the house so that we wouldn't have to drive. And then, because at San Francisco, there's like four fantastic grocery stores, like within an extra quarter of a mile at the most. And our whole life was being lived beautifully in that one or two mile radius. And then we entered the San Francisco Public School Lottery. Um, and we got our seventh choice out of 29, uh, which seems weird, because 50% of people got their first or second choice, first choice. So I don't know. We, we didn't get that lucky. But the school is great. And actually, the principal, Principal Gregory John, should be the 
very face of American public education revival. He is wonderful. This is Commodore Sloat. Unfortunately, it's four and a half miles from my house, so I ride, you know, I do it in the morning, my wife does it in the evening. That's about 2,500 miles per year that were magically added to a house that had almost stopped driving. That costs us about $7,500, but rather than giving me $7,500 to buy an electric bike to ride that, we give $7,500 to subsidize some kid's private school, right? Um, I don't want to pick on Tesla owners again, but we are kind of not getting this right just yet, okay? Uh, and, you know, this would be much better, obviously. Um, and I think this is probably one of the most important points that I'd like to hammer home. If you think about why we travel and move so much, it's because we want to get from good place to good place and avoid the shit in the middle, right? So, you know, uh, there's a lot of suburbs between San Francisco and Palo Alto that we kind of just want to drive really fast past. <laughs> um, some of them are pleasant, in sort of, you know, I'm not, I, but there is, there is a set of people who get in large white buses and do this every day. Uh, I'm getting way off the point. Okay, the point was, <laughs> we drive a lot to get from good place to good place and avoid the crap in the middle, right? And if we raise all the boats, if it was just a good public school everywhere, right, we kind of lived right next to the wrong one. Also, I, I love that you said yay, and I totally believe in public education. I love Principal Gregory John. But, you know, if there's a libertarian solution, so be it. But in the good public school everywhere, I think, is reasonable and we should expect that. And if you had a good schools everywhere and they're all local, then you, know, you wouldn't have to do this absurd driving. Because you know, there's 80,000 kids in this, there's, so you know, there's 80,000 parents with the problem that I just said. So building good schools everywhere, having good shopping centers everywhere, having good gardens and good playgrounds everywhere, like that is our civil infrastructure and we need to get the cojones to say no to the small government people and, and, and say, like, you know, this is actually in our best interest. This is how you create a beautiful world. Uh, stuff as infrastructure. So we all buy a lot of stuff. Sadly, we buy them from these places, big box stores, right? Um, so we ship all of these stuff to the big box stores. This is a hilarious thing. This is called Evergreen Plaza. Um, <laughs> I just, you know, I, I don't really like Google image search as a, as a uh, PowerPoint technique, but uh, sometimes you get something great. Um, so, yeah, this is totally evergreen, right? Uh, because you put that chopping infrastructure and then you trap everyone into thousands of eight-mile trips, um, as opposed to some other option. So, again, thinking about how technology may have changed, and this is, I think, could be very, very significant. So there's my house in San Francisco. There's the big box score store down in Daly City. There's the big box store over in Emeryville. In fact, Emeryville subsidized all the big box stores, uh, so they got the tax and Oakland didn't, which is pretty naughty. Um, right, now imagine every single person in this home doing all these crazy trips to the big box stores, um, and, and you know, there's a lot of unnecessary miles. Uh, this is an Amazon fulfillment center. I don't want to say anything good or bad about Amazon. Uh, but I do think there is an opportunity to have a new conversation about our infrastructure, particularly around how we shop, around our commercial and retail sectors. This again, yeah, the, the giant place. 
So imagine you're delivering these things in this, or even better in this. Maybe they bought all those robot companies, so this thing will have a robot arm, so it'll robotically deliver everything to your door, and they'll have a profitable business like Amazon. Um, uh, and if you did that, then the big box stores would come to you, and because they've solved the traveling sales problem, salesman problem much better, I had to say one nerdy math reference, uh, then we'll have this, this would actually be a hugely more efficient infrastructure. My wife's way ahead of, of it. I think she only uses Amazon to buy stuff now. Um, but this is interesting. So let's have a conversation about how that plays out. Uh, this photo is what we should do with all of those vacant storefronts <laughs> uh, and big box stores, or maybe like this. I would love this to be Emeryville. Who's with me? <laughs> uh, all right. Um, where are we? Okay. This is called the Sankey chart. This is how energy nerds look at energy. Uh, again, take away the emotional feeling of this more so than the numbers. This is how we use, produce America's energy today. 35 quads. This is un I used quads as a unit here. That's a quadrillion British thermal units. Uh, it's actually how, what the Department of Energy favors for this. Conveniently, America uses basically 100 quads. So. Think of this as not in quad units, but as in percentages of America's energy units. All right, so from the beginning. Uh, percentages of American energy, 35% comes from oil, 5% from biomass, this is today, 18% from coal, 28% natural gas, 8.5% nuclear, hydro, wind, solar, geothermal. We send about 38.5 of those into our electrical generation infrastructure. Most of them are those are our thermoelectric plants, and then they get, then all of that energy goes into our residential sector, commercial sector, industrial, and our transportation sector. And you can see the transportation and the industrial ones are the biggest ones, and residential and commercial are significant also. So this is how it all gets wired up. This is sort of the flow diagram. All of the lines are proportional, so you sort of look at the proportions of energy going in. Uh, that's how the electricity flows out from the electric center into residential, commercial, industrial. You can see almost no electricity flowing out into transport yet because you haven't been buying enough electric cars. Despite everything I've said about electric cars, we want more and definitely more electric skateboards. Um, so today we get energy, 40 quadrillion energy service units. It doesn't really, the units don't matter, but roughly 40% of their energy flows through from where we make it into useful work and activities that we enjoy. All of our follies, 40 folly units. Uh, we definitely have, no, these are the follies. We have 60 waste follies. Uh, so today, and you, uh, you, you'll, you'll see this, so where does all this waste come from? Two-thirds of it, this is why your grid-charged Tesla is not green, because all of that grid is producing this big-ass waste that goes over here into the waste follies, whereas if you're running it off solar cell, which you should buy with your $7,500 rebate, you, you just are putting a yellow line down here, which would be great. Um, anyway, that's how we do it today. So that's crazy. All right, here's a different way. Let's, let's be, rebuild our infrastructure from the ground up, and we'll build it backwards. So we want to have the same amount of folly, right? We want the same lovely amount of monster trucking and burning manning and segwaying and tesling. Um, so let's go back 
from there, and I'm going to sort of give you a narrative version of how this might work. So we only need roughly half as much energy into transport, because for most of the light cars and trucks, we're going to go all electric, right? Uh, and some of the big long trucking, we're going to use natural gas. Uh, and, you know, anyway, we halve the amount in transport. We get a little discount on industrial. Uh, commercial, mostly by improving HVAC, we, we get a, about a 10% win. And residential, by living in better designed houses, designed by my other architect up there in the audience. Um, go see him, Mason Kirby, Bernal Heights, he'll do you a good deal. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> uh, all right, and then that all got hugely more efficient because look how we electrified a huge amount of the transportation infrastructure. I'm not telling you what year we're going to do this by yet. That comes later. Wait for the punchline. Uh, we electrified a huge amount of the industrial, commercial, and residential. Uh, and then instead of this old one, we have a tiny bit of oil now because you need some oil for industrial import. Just assume that we haven't quite got the, the biomass doing everything right yet. We do with a fair amount of biomass. We do a small amount of natural gas to solve a few problems. We garden the hell out of the place and make it beautiful to offset the small amount of fossil fuel burning in the natural gas. We increase nuclear. Uh, we go big, deep, and heavy on solar. Um, and same on wind. A little bit of hydro increase, geothermal. And look at that. We get the same amount of energy. We've got one-third the waste. And right, instead of getting 40% from 60, we now got you know, two-thirds. This is totally a believable version of this chart. You could go and find a lot of people to argue and niggle and dial down nuclear because they don't like it and dial up solar, or say they don't like wind turbines. It's going to not really affect the gross shape of this. This is possible, this is doable in North America, and we should just do this. All right, and that's what it looks like. Um, and we're actually, our quality of lives have improved. We ride segways to school on garden paths. Um, we're winning. All right, adoption curves. How much time do you have to do this? How many decisions? So this is really the infrastructure thing. This is called an adoption curve. This is, uh, imagine tomorrow, right? Let's talk in toothbrush units. Uh, toothbrushes are technology. Toothbrushes last a month. Um, if you have an adoption curve 100%, it means that next week Colgate makes the best toothbrush ever. 100% of us sign up to buy that toothbrush. In one month, 100% of everyone in the world is using the best toothbrush. Uh, if you have a, something that lasts a year, it takes a year to get, you know, 100% replacement, right? Five years, 10 years, 25 years. So if you buy a car that lasts 25 years, it'll take 25 years with a 100% adoption curve. So if everyone bought an electric car tomorrow when their old gas car died, it'll take 25 years to replace the 250 million. Uh, this might be a more realistic adoption rate. This is sort of a free market adoption rate. It's like, oh, I might kind of want an electric toothbrush, but I'm going to wait and see if my friends who are early adopters like it first. And then, you know, that sort of explains the first bit. So 5% of people are buying them. And then it gets more and more popular, and by the end of the day, everyone realizes the benefits of an electric toothbrush. And um, so everyone's buying one. At that rate, for a one-year lifetime object, you can see on the bottom axis there, it takes 20 years with an adoption rate like that just to replace one infrastructure that lasts for one year. I don't know what infrastructure lasts for one year. So let's talk about things that last five years, like bicycle. bicycles, it'll take you know, 50 years. If it's a 10-year thing, like a washing machine uh, or a car, 
it's going to take basically 60, 50 or 60 years if we have adoption rates that aren't more immediate, right? So I don't really, uh, I don't think this conversation should be political. I don't really vote here. I'm sort of apolitical. I'm definitely becoming more Republican as I get older. Uh, so the bottom adoption curve is, you know, stereotypically Republican. This is the free market at work. Uh, I don't think that really is the Republican stereotype. They fix markets just like the other guys do. Um, the mandated adoption curve, so that's the one on the left. That's sort of the Democrat version where we all just do the right thing tomorrow because we magically know what the right thing to do is. Uh, all right. Um, I'm, what I'm really trying to say is actually we need to do something much closer to the mandated adoption curve because of this problem. Uh, so for most of your stuff that lasts one to five years, you know, you got to just get the best thing next time you do it. When your car comes up for sale, you know, if you, we really have to, everyone in the world kind of has to make nearly 100% correct infrastructure decisions between now and 2050. And if we do that, we will do better than two degrees of warming. And that's a total win. And the, your life will improve. And you won't, you'll have just as many energy services and you'll have more streets paved with palm trees. It's going to be great. Um, but we have to make the right infrastructure choice every time, not just the individual ones, but the collective ones with our tax dollars and sort of the large public service kind of ones, how we build our public transit systems. All right, uh, coming back to how realistic is this. Um, I did all of this math for a San Francisco person. Turns out that you basically, we all get 20, if you're the 850,000 of us, we get 2,500 square foot of San Francisco each, right? Um, which is, you know, 250 square meters round-ish. Uh, people in Boston, New York, Singapore, Hong Kong, they get less. They get about 2,000 square foot-ish. And I showed you, the point here is to go back and think about, like, San Francisco couldn't solve it within their own borders. We needed to lean on larger, uh, a larger collective space to build our infrastructure. Uh, there are cities in the world, like Macau and Monaco, where you cannot, there is no way, barring putting a nuclear plant in the middle of that town, there's no way to go zero carbon in their footprint. Right, they can't do the 100% solar carport that we can do here, it's gonna be great. Um, all right, so reducing the scale of San Francisco, that's, this is the sort of, Population density of San Francisco versus California versus the population density of the United States. So for every one person in San Francisco, they get that little tiny green amount. And for every one person in the United States, you have this much larger amount of space. Right. And I showed you that us as a San Francisco person, if we used 1% or 2% of all of the land in the United States, we can totally get to this green world by having this solar roadway next to every roadway. Um, so we need to lean on the larger United States to be able to do that, or on the larger California. If you're on the, in the larger California, you need to use a little bit more than 1% of the amount of space because there's less space per person. Uh, there are some countries that can totally do this easily. New Zealand, for example, is the, only, the biggest one that I could fit on this screen because when you hand draw your slides, you don't want to go back and rescale them. Um, Australia, Russia, they have, they're, they're just like off the charts. So those places should be net energy exporters in the future. Uh, 
it's going to be really hard in the United Kingdom because they don't have much space to do it, so that's why they're going heavy on nuclear again. Uh, that's Bangladesh. That's going to be real tough. Um, they don't use a lot of energy, and then we need to have a good conversation about who gets to use how much energy. All right, going back to the infrastructure, uh, did we make any progress tonight? Well, hopefully, I now have you believing that there's a small number of decisions in your life <coughs> that we, we need to make correctly, and once you've done that, you will just accidentally be really greener than all of your smug friends. <laughs> um, but you have to make the right decisions, and you have to make them first time every time. All right, uh, what are those decisions? Next time you buy a vehicle, it should be all electric. If you can't, because you're just too anxious, and you can't wait to, like, in some place to drink a coffee and charge your car and come home and read a book, then get a plug-in hybrid. But then that's the last plug-in you ever get. Then it's all electric, right? Preferably, oh, also, when you buy it, make sure you use the $7,500 to buy solar cells so that you fully cover it, right? So you're not just plugging that thing into the grid. That's naughty, bad, super bad. If you can afford this car, you're buying solar cells. <laughs> uh, really, I think it is unbelievably exciting. So I forgot to make the point. This was a slide to remind me to make the point that, you remember how all of the old cars were super cool and super dangerous and super lightweight? And then we added this huge amount of weight to them to make them safe? With autonomous cars, they're going to be so good, they will never hit each other. Right? We don't need all of that weight anymore. So we could go back to these super lightweight, very efficient cars again in this autonomous car world. So one side of the autonomous car debate could be, how do we use the autonomy for good? How do we use the autonomy to make sure they miss each other so that they're unbelievably efficient and they become the most incredibly ubiquitous and clean and green uh, public transport infrastructure we've ever had? Right? That could be awesome. I don't see people having that conversation. They won't even tell me how much energy it uses. Um, and you should do this. Also, you should tease Henrik, who's in the front row, when you see him on the way out. Um, this is a better idea, right? Okay. Uh, your housing infrastructure. If you build a house, uh, build it right first time, suck up all the extra cost. To give you a sense of it, it is insane to build this house to try to build a house to try and be green. So. I called the builder that I know and like on Saturday morning and I said, I'm preparing this talk. Uh, you know the house that I might be going to build if the city of San Francisco ever gets their shit together and lets us build it. Um, how much is it going to cost to put the wiring in that house? So just the conduit, just all the wiring. He says, up to the, including the fixtures, I'm saying no, just short of the fixtures. So just put in all the copper wires and the circuit breakers and things. He's like, it'll cost you $80,000 for a 2,000 square foot home. Uh, in, that's in San Francisco. It might be cheaper somewhere else in the country, and I'm sure there are cheaper... James, I don't know if you're in the audience, but I'm sure there are cheaper electricians. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if I, this is my price, what bid will go down or up now. Um, anyway, the point about that $80,000 uh, is all of the electricity that goes through this house, because we've designed it to be so efficient, in the next 100 years is about that cost. Right? And it's the same with the... You, what is a Tesla round figures is $80,000 also, it will never, you know, it, it will, in its lifetime you won't put $80,000 worth of electricity through it. So um, we've got to rethink it. Fossil fuels were so cheap that we, we, you know, the upfront cost, you wanted it to be 
low, but now you're going to have to pay a big upfront cost and then amortize it over long periods of time. Make these decisions correctly. Buy small ones is even better than buying efficient ones. And definitely dry your tie-dyes on the line. Um, this is just a reminder, like, we have to lobby the cities that we live in and the planners, and we have to collectively make better decisions. Uh, you have to tell your employers that it's absurd that we have to all, like, drive so much. Um, in the white buses, I may have ridiculed them earlier, they're probably, full occupancy, they're about 50 watt-hours per mile. So every time you're driving behind that white bus and you're all in your face, you're changing San Francisco, uh, it is actually the most efficient way to move those people through all the ugly suburbs. Uh, <laughs> which is to stress the point that we have to make everywhere beautiful, right? And everywhere has to have a good public school. Everywhere has to have gardens. And this should be our commute, and there's no white buses. It'd be awesome. Uh, this is Lord Howe Island. They have, you're only allowed to commute by bicycle. I wish we could all live there. Um, the next best thing is Folsom Street. Uh, I don't know, we live on the top of Bernal, and you look down on all of those north-south facing streets, and there's just all of this ugliness, and then there's this just vibrant, green, beautiful street. And when you walk down, I walk to the office, I have a choice. I can walk down Folsom, or I can turn right at Procedure and then walk down Alabama. If you walk down Folsom, it's cool and pleasant all year round, because the trees provide this natural cooling effect and this shade. And if I walk down Alabama, it's hot. Alabama is smoother, so it's more fun to ride the skateboard. But the point being, we need to you know, think about gardening and trees and green stuff as infrastructure again. Uh, there's a great opportunity to rethink how we do retail uh, and how we do delivery and how we buy our stuff. Um, and I think we can totally do this now. I probably wouldn't have said that 10 years ago, so that's good news. And then, oh. There are extra slides, so ignore you saw those. Uh, and then this is my two-year-old daughter crossing the bridge in the Japanese garden, and I'd like to finish on the Japanese garden. I think the Japanese are a very wise, very old culture. They have one of the lowest per capita uh, energy consumptions in the world, especially proportional to their quality of life, and it's because they've built beautiful infrastructure and they respect things like gardens. And I think we need to also try and think like an old, long culture uh, like Japan. And if we do so, we can actually win this. Thanks. Not too surprisingly, a lot of the questions are about various specific technologies. You are incredibly specific, and that helps. Um, so Pete says, what about uh, solar thermal? It's 50% efficient. As a matter of fact, we heat water for a pool in our place in Petaluma. Uh, solar thermal doesn't count. All I saw was white roofs. That was... Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if that's... Is, it, is that Pete Lynn? It's totally a Pete Lynn question. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, so solar thermal is actually... I'm super interested, and I didn't write it off. Um, I will give you two anecdotes. We, uh, I, I work with a wonderful woman, Layla Madrone. She runs a solar company that we started called Sunfolding that is building tracking devices. And we started that company thinking we were going to be tracking mirrors for solar thermal. Uh, 
building solar thermal plants, they want to be really large to be efficient. And sure, yes, they are efficient, but there it is a billion dollars each time you run the experiment. And unfortunately, because you can build lots of cheaper solars much faster, we've had a lot more innovation. And at this point, um, photovoltaics won the cost curve race against large-scale solar thermal. You, Pete may also be talking about uh, solar thermal for heating your house. Um, I really looked at doing this, and it totally, given the thermal load of our house, the thing in my head that made the most sense to build was no PV on the roof, all solar thermal collectors, 50% mm. efficient, twice the efficiency that would have got out of PV. They don't leak anymore. It's kind of cool. The, the plastic That's collectors what you, yeah, are good. You, you haven't had it for a full life cycle. So now I'm going to imagine having a ton of water above the house. and have, Because we live on a slope like this, it's like three stories. So then I'm going to have to pump it down, and we're going to do in-floor radiant heating with warm water made. We need to have, uh, we sized the tank, and it was a 4,000-gallon tank, which would have taken up the space for an electric car. There are earthquake the issues. And there are earthquake issues. And you think about the complexity of that system. And it really pained me, because I wanted that to win. Like, I wanted that to win. And then you're like, oh, but I could just do PV, and it's going to just be easier. This is pretty much of an ownership story you're telling. What do renters do? Uh, so... That's a, great, that's a great criticism. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 could, I use the narrative of my own life because it's an easy way to tell a story about infrastructure. I think the, the question for renters is, is, is difficult. You would like to do the right things, but you don't have a huge amount of control. So uh, I think we need to solve the cultural problems which are putting people off buying houses because I actually think that when people invest in their communities... Um, the cultural and financial issues that are making it harder for young people to buy houses. Uh, I don't know how we solve those. They're even harder than whatever I talked about tonight. But uh, I think people investing in their place makes better communities. Um, so those, sh those things should happen. Barring that, we need to make the policy and the legislation things at city level that give renters better options. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. There must be some... I, I don't know. It's hard. Whoever asked that question, I'll workshop it with you on Monday or Tuesday. <laughs> it uh, sounds like the way you're really looking at there is what works for landlords that would meet all of these. We have to figure out what works for landlords. And, you know, there's no sh it's no shock that there were 18 landlords on the 20-person advisory board to the city of San Francisco on renewable energy. A question from Luke Davis. This is all very optimistic. How would all this change if there was a war? Basically, I would say, how would all this... What are the... That's one bad thing that might happen. Um, and I get this question, too, because I generally tell an optimistic story. Uh, because you've worked a pretty specific set of plot lines in your optimistic story, what do you know are the major vulnerabilities of those plot lines? Um, one of the good things about war is we all use less energy during war, and we kill people. Okay, that's super dark, and that was optimistic, sort of. <laughs> uh, war is bad, and honestly, a huge amount of our personal energy goes into fighting wars. So, you know, that big quarter or more of my pie chart is, is this government fighting wars over oil. 
And so, it's mostly not fighting wars, it's sort of being ready to maybe fight wars. That's where a whole lot of that cost goes. I think warfare is going to change profoundly. It already has. It's all about drones and it's not flying people. and you know. Cyber war and stuff like that. Cyber, Cyber war is so energy efficient. Cyber war. <laughs> Cyber war is energy efficient. Drone wars are energy efficient. Uh, so, you know, war is bad and will disrupt that. Um, I think the, your point is, yes, I gave you an optimistic story because uh, my wife was sick of me telling the, giving the world's most depressing talk. Um, I actually am more optimistic now than I have been in a long while. So Not, why? Uh, so am I. Uh, I got tired of being not optimistic. Um, are but you I just telling the psychology or are you actually responding to something in the world? No, I'm responding to something in the world. So, okay. Uh, you know, in, in climate change, people talk about tipping points. And we don't have electric cars at the price point yet that is at a tipping point, but we're kind of close to one. We're at a tipping point on solar. And it's probably not, honestly, and I say this as a technologist, it's not really the technology that gets us to that tipping point. The companies, that the green, the green energy companies that have won big have really been the companies that have figured out how to do the financing the best. So we've invented essentially mortgage and financing instruments, solar city, Sunrun, all these guys. And it's those financing instruments uh, and even on the rebates for the electric cars that are making those things affordable and I think we're going to get a lot more adoption. Um, so I think those things are, are worth being optimistic. And then I think there are a couple of big sea changes uh, that are coming from technology that enable us to be optimistic that we'll design a better infrastructure. The autonomous car. Mm -hmm. Um, what replaces big box stores? Because I think that can happen. Uh, you know, it might be Amazon or it might be something else. So distribution replacing big boxes or making big boxes more efficient yeah. in these autonomous vehicles, which are now small and not heavy because they don't run into each other. Things like mm -hmm. that. I don't know exactly how they play out. But mm -hmm. I think both of those, you know, they can move, they can move 10 or 20 quads around. What else is changed for you since 2009 when you talked about this, which was when you kind of started to take it on, as I recall. I took it on for a while, and then I just felt beat up. Mm -hmm. um, the, what else has changed for me? Uh, I had to... I think in the, in the... I got older, I got two kids, and I had to build the type of infrastructure that goes with that, so we're, we're sinking roots in San Francisco and building a house, and then in deeply looking at that and using it as a design experiment and the thought experiment. Um, how do you do it right? How do you do this in a way that works for everyone? Uh, it makes you look for, be solution oriented, right? And I think if you're humble about the houses, so you don't build the giant, you know, America is building bigger and bigger and bigger houses. The average house size is now up over 2,800 or maybe even 3,000 square foot. We're not going to get there on that trajectory, but at the same time, there's a small house movement that are building amazing houses of a few hundred square feet. Um, we're in the middle. Uh, and um, I, I think you can build them more efficiently. So I think that built, the built environment could have a big shift and a big change in a good way. Also, I've been working a lot with people at the Department of Energy, and uh, there's optimism and excitement there. Uh, what um, are they optimistic about? Not the same thing you are, I suspect. Uh, no, they're I mean, they're not building a family and a house and settling roots. No, and stuff they're like just. That. I, I think there's some optimism that we've made some progress on things energy related, and that things are moving. Infrastructure is changing. We're building fewer coal plants. We're putting a ton of solar in the ground. The cost of solar is half what it was when I talked this last time. The cost of wind is less than half of what it was. 
Um, there still isn't any decent energy storage for solar and wind. Still no care? decent energy storage, and the Tesla wall is not nearly on the scale of that, because you know, the energy storage problem, yes, we have the daily one. The energy storage problem that's hard on the 50-year timeline is winter. Is? Winter. Mm -hmm. So we either shuttle it back and forwards to the southern hemisphere, but there's, only, there's not enough southern hemisphere to balance the northern hemisphere. <laughs> uh, but the, so that's, that's a big hard storage problem. Um, that's probably why I biased more of the, that new pie chart, if you like, towards nuclear and biofuels, because they, mm -hmm. they, they have a better chance with that. Some um, biofuels must be better than others, because the corn-based ones sort of got a bad reputation. Uh, I don't think there's a good biofuel yet, but I think there's Theoretically, enough. what would one be? Uh, I think you've got to look for north of... A two tree with a tap in it that you turn <laughs> yeah. and jet fuel comes out. Yeah, the problem, with, the problem with these pesky plants, I love plants, I mean, I really do. I think plants are great and super fascinating. Um, but the problem is they don't just want to produce you hydrocarbons. They want to live and they want to reproduce and they have a mind of their own and they spend a huge amount of their energy doing that. Right. right? So there's some really boring plants that look like algae mm -hmm. and they don't do as much of all of the fun things. Like re They don't have as many follies, so they, they are maybe <laughs> three or four percent efficient. In, you know, in converting so the future sunlight. of biofuels is microbial, probably highly uh, engineered uh, by I think it's microbial, microbial, but I actually think it's you know, sane use of wood, uh, sustainably farmed. I think it's you know, agricultural byproduct, and, I, and you know, I think it's a mixture of all of these things. There is a lot of good work, and it's getting better. The corn scandal was a ridiculous boondoggle, and we, sh we, we knew that. People knew that that was going to be the outcome, and so mm -hmm. we... So that was a frustrating one, um, but I think the 2000 to 2010 period will be known as maximum energy hype, minimum energy progress. I think now to 2025 looks like actually the sane solutions are emerging. So maybe that's where the optimism is, better work on biofuels. Well, we'll head toward wrapping here, but I should say that the your Australian trees, the eucalyptus, are the best firewood I know. And they very kindly just drop the branches every so often. You know? <laughs> they, are, uh, uh, they are wonderful firewood. They are a lumberjack's nightmare. They're horrible. Yeah. Yeah, they're hard and they've got knots. They don't split well. They're good exercise. Yeah, Actually, there's this, I, yeah. I, I read this one. I was in a cabin recently and they had this wonderful treatise on wood and burning wood, and they call it the fuel that heats you twice. <laughs> when you chop it down, then when you burn it. So yeah. I'm looking to be heated twice. Yeah, in New England, they tell you about three times, you also carry it yeah. and stuff like that. Um, sort of general question, a lot of your optimism, a lot of your focus obviously is on uh, sort of counting on more and more innovation, more and more invention, more you know, different tech with various uses, with making politics, making cities work better. And you focus pretty much on San Francisco, U.S. Um, climate change is global. And actually, most of the issue with climate change is not the U.S., uh, which is sort of tailing off in its uh, greenhouse gases. That's, that's optimistic. A lot of it's <laughs> historical. But uh, you know, big events are in places like um, China and India and elsewhere. How's the innovation inventiveness, uh, cities taking on these kinds of infrastructure issues. What's your sense of the global prospects 
of lots of people behaving in the ways that you're talking about? Uh, I think we need the rest of the world to run experiments that America won't. Such as? Uh, I, I, I believe s small Asian cities and European cities are going to more quickly deploy crazy alternatives like, hey, let's all, you know, let's close the city of London to 400 watt-hour per mile vehicles and open it only to 100 watt-hour per mile vehicles, mm -hmm. right? London has already made movements like that. Um, I think you're going to see that in a ton of those places, and then those cities will be much nicer to live in than our big box stores. Um, and so eventually we'll move more city design that way. So I think uh, that side of your question, I think we want to run all of these experiments as globally as you can. I gave the talk here, we're all from San Francisco, I could use place names. I wanted to, I wanted to familiarize you with the realities of doing it ourselves, mm -hmm. but then understanding that doing it ourselves is like we have to lean on each other and our collective infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But the point of showing you those slides at the end of like, you know, this is San Francisco. San Francisco on a global scale is a very high population density city. Um, we can't solve the problem here. And I showed you cities like Hong Kong and, and Macau and Singapore. They will never, they can't produce their energy, but they're, um, there are enough places and they're large enough. Like Britain has a good chance by doing a fair amount of nuclear to actually take itself off grid, if you That's like. That's your friend David Mackay's effect, as, I suspect. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, David Mackay wrote that book, spent a lot of time, essentially as Stephen Chu's equivalent of the Department of Energy and Climate Change in Britain. And they made a lot of, uh, I think the British Civil Service does a better job of reason-based legislation. And, uh, and they did that there. God, you guys have got to fix your politics. I'm going to have to get citizenship just so I can help you vote correctly here. <laughs> um, Australia being the model of how to do it, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> Touche. Wow. I mean, we've had five. Yeah, at least you've only had, like, a few bad politicians in 20 years. We've had five in three years. Well, if you use up on all of them, there's only good ones left. Right? Yeah, I hope so. Thank you. This is fun. We'll do it again in a few years. Thank you. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.